Hello and welcome to In The Circle, an inside look at field hockey in the United States, a podcast that gets you closer to the athletes, staff, club administrators, coaches, umpires and fans of USA Field Hockey. Nice move this. Nice triangle of play. They thread it through here onto the right-hand side. Gonzalez again looks up. Well, it's a good opportunity getting here for USA to take the lead and they have. Harrow Sports is a proud and longtime sponsor of USA Field Hockey. Please go check out their website at harrowsports.com for all of your futures and field hockey needs. If you are a member of USA Field Hockey, don't forget to use your member code to receive a free elite backpack with the purchase of any field hockey stick, $150 and over. For more details, please log on to your USA Field Hockey account and click on member discounts to retrieve your code. Looking in a stride here by Gregor. Oh, lovely bit of work here by Gregor. Can she get on the score sheet? Across the goal there from Gregor. Well, it's another solo goal here. Hello there and welcome to In The Circle. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Director of Coach Education and Learning, Craig Parnham. Thanks for joining us, Craig. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. No, it's, uh, I'm really looking forward to this, looking forward to having a chat and, uh, and listening to your, your hockey journey and, and some points of view. Yeah, no, likewise. Uh, I'm delighted to be on here and uh, so thanks for considering me. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting going. If you wouldn't mind kicking us off and just give us a, a brief overview of your, your hockey journey to date. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'll try and keep it uh, <laughs> relatively succinct. It could, could talk here for a while, but um, I mean, I, I started like uh, many people. I started uh, playing when I was at school um, back in the UK. Um, I actually was a soccer player. I, I sort of was more inclined to play soccer and, and was pretty good at that. Um, but got to a point in my life where I was playing up a couple of age groups and those guys around me were a lot bigger and I wasn't that big growing up. So I got booted around and kicked around a lot. So um, got a little bit disillusioned with that. And my dad and my brother played hockey. So I was actually watching them one day. I was actually kicking a soccer ball around and they were playing and they were short of a player. So I sort of jumped in and took to it pretty well and enjoyed it. So as I started my playing career, um, played at the local club uh, and then sort of just developed there was a national league club not far from where I was so that was Starport um, and so I went down there to play with with that team that was the first time I experienced national league and uh, that was a real step up for me really great experience and great players there and, and a, a really valuable experience for me as a player and then from there the next sort of progression for me was to go to a the next level, if you like, which was a National League club that was sort of on the rise, and that was up at Canuck, just going up the other direction, up the uh, the motorway. Um, and so, played at Canuck for a few years, and we had a lot of success, a um, number of, you know, championships and cups and some great European experiences. And that, that was a fantastic group of players as well. You know, I think everybody was an international player at some level for some country. So learned a huge amount about the game there. Um, got seen, when I was playing at Canada, got seen by England and they sort of were, became a bit interested. As a new coach came in in sort of uh, 2000, and, uh, no, it was a bit 1998. And um, actually it was 
year 2000, just early 2000, I got selected to play for Great Britain and then went on to play for Great Britain and England for a few years. Uh, was lucky enough to go to play in a couple of Olympics in Sydney and Athens. And then, yeah, got into coaching. I'd been coaching all the way through, really, and got into coaching more seriously. Um, was working at a school in, in Bromsgrove School in England and did sort of 10 years of director of hockey there, which was, you know, really where you learn a lot about coaching. I was coaching for several hours a day for 10 years, you know, so I got a lot of practice in and got it wrong a lot and learned a lot of valuable lessons. Um, and then moved up to Scotland, became a national coach up there and then was there for a few years, had a great role up there and was working with a great staff. That was my first opportunity to lead a group of staff. So the skill of managing staff, so sports science, sports med, psychologists, physiologists, you know, the whole group. So that was a valuable, valuable experience for me. And then back down to England and was coaching um, England and Great Britain uh, from Beijing, Olympics through to London Olympics and then yeah after London came to the US and here I am. Quite a journey like you said you uh, you skipped through it very well but it's uh it's I'd forgotten some of the stuff you'd I'd forgotten you'd gone up to Scotland and, and worked there so uh, yeah very very interesting and what would what was the deciding factor for you to come over to the US it's obviously uh, a big change big shift what was the what were the reasons behind that? It was several actually Mark um my my wife and I actually really love America. We uh, we we visited America for many many years before we actually moved here on vacations and holidays. And so almost, I mean, almost every year for several years before we would we would visit the U.S. and we'd been to many parts of the U.S. and really enjoyed it. Um, so there was an interest just generally to live in America. We'd always thought that'd be kind of a cool thing to do. Uh, after the London Olympics had finished, we'd uh, had a good run with GB. We managed to get a, a bronze medal. Um, and it was an interesting time. I think I'd obviously witnessed the US team have a, have a tough tournament in London. I think they were sort of um, expecting or hoping for a little bit more and, and you know, they, they didn't have a, you know, the, the two week experience was not that good for them and they, you know, didn't do so well. And of course there was changes to management at that point. And so it was just that sort of combination. Okay, well, here's an opportunity in a country that I quite have enjoyed just to be around. And with a group that I knew very well, I'd been the England under 21 coach and actually was at the World Cup in Boston, um, you know, a couple of years before. And I'd seen the team play and I knew the quality of some of the players in the junior team. And I'd seen the team play for many years as an assistant coach working with GB. You know, USA was one of the teams that I scouted. So I knew them very well. And I knew that there was a lot of potential. And so the, the mix of an opportunity to live in a country that we enjoyed. And I think, you know, we would always look at the US from the other side of the pond there and say, Jesus, they've you know, got it right on the field they could be a great team and so that was a real sort of incentive and a challenge that I thought I wanted to have a go at was to you know could could you do something with this this talented group and, and you know make some marks so that was really it. Well no I echo your point here we are two Brits talking in America <laughs> um, but it's uh, it is certainly a, a very good way of life over here and it's, it's certainly a, a great place to, to bring to 
to go and do things. Great restaurants, great everything. And certainly the hockey, like you said, is, uh, has got huge potential. What about um, highlights of your time as the national team head coach? Are there any that stand out in particular? Yeah, there's plenty. I mean, there's, 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 I think, you know, when you ask a question like that, my mind actually just skips to the, the moments of on the field. But actually, if I really sort of actually think a little more, I would say that really for me that the first big win and a highlight that was critical to the, the movement that we had with that group was that, a hundred percent of the players that I inherited in the one, which was a program that was based predominantly out of the West Coast over in Chula Vista, all agreed and signed up to this new journey that was relocating to the East Coast. And really early on, that was a concern of mine as to you know how many of these players would sort of make that metaphorical and physical move of well, you know, we're trying something different in a new space, and it's going to be unknown and so to have 100 percent of the, the the group at the time sort of commit to and be open-minded and and willing to try something different was a real real big highlight for me and, and that sort of set us on our way and i really played huge tribute to the players who they they stepped into the unknown with a real willingness and eagerness and openness to develop and get better and, and that was the, that was the key to it really um and i think what else was a highlight? I think I think generally, if I look back, generally, and there's always sort of broad brush, but I think we probably maximised the development of that group, you know, in, in many ways. And I think I'm a believer of, you know, the adage that success leaves clues. And I think it's not a highlight, but it's an important track and a market to keep an eye on as a head coach is that what you understand or define as success is really important and you need to know what it looks like and you need to know how to measure it so that a you know what it looks like when you get there and b you know you're on the right track when you're on the journey there so that was part of a a, a process and system that we set up with identifying what good looks like identifying how we can measure it and making sure that the trends are moving in the right not right direction because i said that you you can see a journey of success when you look back and equally you can see a journey of failure so it's important to know when you're on your journey which one you're on so that was that was good and I think you know if I think about let's maybe answer the question that you want which is the on-field thing um, I think what was pleasing and what would probably be considered a highlight of a four-year journey was that we arrived at the two major world events the World Cup in 2014 and the Olympics in 2016 and on day one of both of those tournaments, I felt really good that we had got the group and the, or the group had got themselves to a spot where we were ready to compete and to, to actually, you know, to perform at our best. And, and I think that is quite a difficult to, to thing to do is when you're preparing a team is to get them to arrive at the start line ready to go. And, and so I, I think that was a real highlight. We managed to do that in the, the, the two big times that we needed to do it. And I guess that's the, the real job of coaching, right? As soon as the game starts, your, your influence is, is very, very limited. Um, far more limited than we'd like it to be. Um, but, but getting those players to that line in, in the right condition and in the right frame of mind and, and with all guns blazing is, a, is, is, is the role. Yeah, and, and I mean, our role in that is a, 
I, I would consider it a facilitative role anyway, just the, the role of coach um, and, and the players are the ones that, you know, get themselves there or don't get themselves there. And, and our job is to sort of create the opportunity and space to allow it to happen. And, and yeah, that's what ultimately a successful coaching is. But um, the role of the players is, as, as we know, it goes without saying, is, is absolutely critical in that. And, and their willingness and openness and desire and effort and all the things that you could talk about was was a huge, the huge part of, of that team and, and, you know, its its journey. Looking at with a, a bit of focus on players, you sort of touched on it slightly there, but are there any sort of traits or, or things that you look for in particular in a player? Is there things that stand out to you that say that's a player I like or they're, they're traits that I would like to be shown in a team that, that represents me on the pitch? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, as coaches, again, I'd say it's really important that we understand. I think we might get to talk a little bit about philosophy as we go through this and it might come up. But um, I think as a coach, you understand what you believe in and how you like the game to be played. And, and so that leads you to the type of player you look for. Um, for me, uh, selflessness is absolutely key. And, and it's almost one of the things that I'm looking out for. Right? So, I mean, it's nothing to do with you know the skill of the game, but if you're playing a team sport, it, it's absolutely critical that you have the ability to put the team first. And, and when you get to that, you can make great things happen. So for for me, when I'm looking at players, I'm, I'm, I understand in my mind what selflessness looks like, and it's different for everybody. But as coaches, I think you need to understand whatever your values are, you need to understand what they look like in action so you can, as we said, measure against it. Um, so that would be first a key tenement for me is, is the ability for a person to put the team before themselves. I think on the field, um, I think the level of consistent performance is really, really important at international level. And I think the real good players, their range of performance, you know, where they don't necessarily peak really, really high and you don't see many, many deep, deep dips in performance. And so a player that has an ability to stay in a bandwidth of, of high performance or, or acceptable performance are ones that sort of gravitate towards my, uh, my thinking. Um, I think... If you have a player with what I would consider game sense, their ability to understand the game, you know, the real nuts and bolts from a simple 2v1, you know, the conceptual understanding of how to beat a player with another player, to managing a game through moments of adversity or, you know, how do you play when the opponent goes down to nine players and you're in the ascendancy or, and I think just the, the understanding of the rhythm of the game and the tempo of the game those players who can understand and appreciate the flow of the game, when to push, when to hold, um, I think those are the players that I look for and I turn my eyes drawn to. Because I think if you understand that type of the, part of the game, you are generally, your ability to make decisions is, is at a higher level. Your ability to be self-organizing and, and manage yourself and those around you is probably likely to be more sort of um, visible. And I, and I think those are real, like you said just a few minutes ago, when the game starts, our, our, our engagement, our involvement, our ability to shape things is limited. And so you need a bunch of people on the field that know how they can do that. Um, and I think, I mean, finally, people would probably look at teams that I would put out and say that 
the obvious thing is the physical attributes of a player is, you know, I think is obvious and, and I see great value in it. Um, but that's just down to my philosophy of how I like the game to be played. I like to see a fast, exciting game because actually more than anything, it's more, it's more enjoyable for me to watch as much as anything else. So um, if you have that, then you need to be able to have athletes and capacity and players that can manage the work and, and play at the tempo. So yeah, those, those are some of the things that I'd be looking for in players. No, totally. And I'm, I'm always interested as a coach, which players am I, am I fed by my own unco unconscious biases as a coach? Like the, like you, you sort of um, touched on there with regards to your philosophy. I'm very similar. Those players that have high levels of hockey IQ are players that jump off the page to me when I'm looking at a, a game. But maybe I potentially undervalue other players who bring different skill sets. So I think I guess that's the the key to providing some some balance to what you do and, and not just having I was a, a slow centre half, not just having a slow a team of slow centre halves who are who are very hockey intelligent but very limited in in other ways. Yeah, no, I agree. I think and, the, and how you build the composition of your team is different and, and you don't always get to you know, you don't get to go to battle with what you want, you go with what you got, right? And and so um the players that are available to you and, and that could be, that might not absolutely fit with your view and philosophy. And so you then have to think about, well, I mean, I think it was Vince Lombardi that his quote of, you know, the most important thing in coaching is picking the right team to coach, you know, and, and <laughs> so I think that's a really important thing. And that, I, I definitely thought about that when looking at the US, I, I knew that they could be, um, are really, really, I mean, physically, they're always pretty good, you know, and, and they all, we would, from England's point of view, when I was preparing notes for analysis meetings to prepare to the team in GB in England, my, my first comment about US was always that this is a team that is absolutely united. The clue is in the name and, and they will give everything for every minute of the game and don't underestimate that as an opponent. And so when I got to work with a team, that was really one of the big things that we pushed and pushed hard. That became our differentiator was that nobody would outplay us and, and we would leave everything out there. And, and I think when you can tap into something like that, you can really start to make progress and move things. And again, you touched on it slightly, but just would you mind just expanding a little bit on your philosophy? You said you wanted to be go forward you want to be attacking um, and it's just more interesting to watch which I wholeheartedly agree um, would you mind just expanding a little bit more on on your coaching philosophy and, and what you would like to see on the pitch yeah I mean for me it, it, it's um, I mean I've probably spoken about this many many times um, I, I think if I was I mean and it would change if I was to coach a team tomorrow I, I'd probably approach it differently but if, if we're talking about you know, just in my recent history, philosophically, I like, as you said, I like to be front foot. I like to be attacking. I like to, um, you know, play with tempo. I've always, coming from the men's game and being involved in the men's game and as a player and as a coach, when I moved into the women's game, the one thing that always struck me, and, and I'd be chatting with Danny for, you know, for the first several months of when I was working with GB, he's like, we've got to get the tempo. We've got to get the tempo. We've got to play faster. We've got to, and it wasn't, the physical thing we get, but it was the speed of thought and the ability to just play fast um, with our mind was was something I was always trying to push. So that was always that's always stuck with me. But I think for me philosophically, I've said before that my, if I can step back as the coach and the team can fully function in Excel, then I've done my job. And um, my, my 
underlying principle of coaches to, to this sense of redundancy, to be able to step back and for the team to fully function, whether I'm there or not. Because again, you mentioned it earlier, is that really when the game starts, my influence or our influence as coaches is somewhat limited. And that ideal then means that you need to start to create moments of practice and um, you're in, in your environments where you are allowing the players to make decisions and to decide on how things are done. And that takes quite a lot of courage as a coach because you are essentially saying, well, you're inviting people and the players to be part of this. And some people, some coaches don't like that because it's the element of control and they, they don't want to concede that. But um, for me, I've always found that, you know, the players are your greatest resource. And if you don't tap into it, you're, you're missing a trick. So, um, yeah, um, independent thinkers, players that can solve problems and create, um, you know, great moments through creativity. But those are sort of things that you would see as a byproduct of a coach that is, is trying to make themselves sort of step back and redundant. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. And I, I, from from my personal point of view, just seeing fast attacking direct hockey is is how I'd like to play. I from a, I always say it is I'd rather watch a game that was five four than one nil. Um, mm. And it really is that simple. I'd rather play it. I'd rather watch it. I'd rather coach it. So yeah, and, and I think with, the, with the, the group I was lucky enough to work with, the last group, um, this US group, um, was that of course there is a you you have to balance this. And if you want to play front foot fast forward facing hockey, the, the the cost of that is that you you're going to maybe leave a bit more space at the back, or you're going you know if you want to have your halfbacks bombing up and down the outside of the field, then you have to be comfortable with the fact that. You might be left outnumbered or you could be prone to counterattack. And that's absolutely, you go into it with your eyes wide open. But again, with the quality of the players that we'd got, we'd got, you know, Rachel Dawson, uh, Lauren Crandall, Caroline Nichols, Julia Ryan Preck, Steffi. You know, you've got a group of players playing in the back line there that their qualities and attributes, almost all of those players I've just named, they are unbelievably cool and controlled in moments of chaos and so a moment of chaos for a lot of people would be to have you know a 3v2 against Argentina in 50 yards of space whereas for me and for those players well maybe not I just can't speak for the players but for <laughs> me I was pretty comfortable with that because I knew that we'd got real good people that could make good decisions in those moments and there was going to be a cavalry of midfielders and forwards tackling back faster and harder than anybody else so that was just one of the costs one of the risks of playing front foot forward hockey is and and as long as you understand that and the players do going in then yeah that, that's kind of part of part of what you get and I guess that's always challenged it most like uh, there's a big thing I always like the order of scoring um, doesn't always like order of scoring Argentina might have had their big chances in the first three minutes of the game and they might be 3-0 up at that stage and it's are we going to stay true to our, what we believe and, and carry on with this front foot hockey are we going to get spooked by it and and sort of change what we're trying to do yeah no, I agree entirely and, and that then comes down to the depth of the belief within the team and you, you see it a lot Mark with um, I always was challenged a lot about if we're 1-0 down with a few minutes to go, do we take the keeper off? You know, there's always, as I smile to myself, a couple of coaches that would work with me, we're all, you know, we're often big advocates of it. And it's not that I'm not, I'm, I'm, I think it's a great strategy, but it's not a strategy I was that familiar with. And I never really used it. And my response was that, 
we're playing a brand and a style of hockey that is trying to create loads and loads of chances just in normal play. So I don't see that we need, we, we can't do any more in terms of trying to create chances. Now, you could argue the toss on that, but if you do decide to play a game where you pull the keeper, you absolutely need to practice it and understand what it looks like. And I see so many times where the keeper is taken out of the game and I don't see any real noticeable difference up the field yeah. to add further players forward. And, and it, it, you know, I, I think it's, it can cause some confusion for opponents. But, um, yeah, regardless of where you stand on it, it you, you have to practice those strategies. And, and it was something that I never really, I don't know, I didn't take the time to do it because I felt that we were, we were doing as much as we could to create moments to score as it was. Mm -hmm. And I guess it also potentially ruins the flow of the last five minutes, for example, if you can do it late in a game. Like, trust the process, trust that that chance will come and sooner or later, Katie Bam or somebody's going to turn up and, and put it in. Yeah, and that, and that was, that's, I think, where that was my level of comfort and where we were with that group. And, and we would talk a lot, you know, the players and I, we would always talk about, you know, the aggregate, if, if you know, philosophically, if you want to score two goals, you've got to create. 12 really really good chances and that was just the number i mean it's an arbitrary number but that was always what you know one goal you you got to get 10 really really good moments in front of goal and that sometimes happens and sometimes it doesn't you create two chances you score two goals but you know over the piece i think you've got to create moments of excitement and moments of where you're sort of up off your seat and those are the moments i think that's that almost represents me a, a, a time where okay that's a good chance and we either score it or we don't but You've got to have so many of those in the game, I think, to get your numbers up. Agreed. Um, where do you see, just changing tack slightly, where do you see um, potential areas of growth within field hockey within the US? What is, what's the lowest hanging fruit as far as you see it? Um, and like you said, I think you and I sit here as sort of foreigners, as it were, coming from a different background and growing up in a different environment. And I think the easy thing for me to say that would really make a difference and something would look different would be a, a competitive adult league you know i think that could be a really really cool thing to have here and the ability for people that when they come out of college environments in the women's game here particularly it's it's so depressing to all of us that have seen the other side that if you don't get included in a group of 25 for the national team your opportunity to play hockey is really really somewhat limited um, and I know it's not because I know there's some really great initiatives in different cities around the country where they've got some adult leagues, but I think a more um, visible, more ingrained, more joined up, um, doesn't need to be a national league, but some really cool regional leagues where players can have the opportunity to continue to play and train with something in mind, a purpose to play for, would be really easy. And, and no, wouldn't be really easy. It would be really exciting I think it does require some effort to set it up I don't think it's that you know challenging but it does require you know effort and time and I think what's a little bit different maybe culturally is that I think if I was to say that in the UK where you and I are from that a lot of those leagues are volunteers that kind of manage the umpires or manage the league organization or do the results and you know post those things so I think um, and that's just a cultural thing. And I think 
for the leagues that are running around here now, I think that is the case. So that, that would be a really low hanging one for us is it does require effort. It does require some attention. It does require somebody to commit to doing, putting some time to it. But I, I think um, it would, it would certainly help keep people in the sport. It would help probably engage with more people, uh, certainly at an older level. And I think it would be a, a really good one for us to look at. No, I agree. And I guess the US face some of the similar geographical issues that you'd see in Australia, for example, and they've got it with their, like you go to the Melbourne leagues or the Perth leagues or the, the Brisbane leagues, and they've sort of done a very similar thing. So that type of model, I guess, seems to, to fit quite nicely. And then they build up to a, they're, they're, they've changed it now to the hockey one, but it was the old AHL, um, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah, I agree. And I think like, I mean, the development team from the women's side is a small stepping stone to try and bridge that gap. So it's more than the national team, but it's, yeah, it certainly more needs to be done to encourage not only elite participation in my view, but just hockey in general, just keep, keep more people involved in the sport for longer. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that development team that has sort of started over the you know, in the last few years has started to become more of a you know visible thing. I was lucky enough to spend some time with that group. I mean, it's, a, it's a really great environment for that group of players. It's just, you know, could we extend that to a broader group of players that then filter into that development group? You know, that would be the real magic, you know. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's... It's not a new conversation. I'm sure it's been, I know it's been going on for a long time and um, I'm not quite sure how it can happen, but it, it's certainly something that I think could happen. Yeah, and certainly it feels like very much in life in with world events and global events that we've got to a, a period where there's a time for, to, for thought and to see what, how the, the new way is going. So maybe now's a good time to, for that type of thing to be looked at and, and, and get the, the ball rolling. Yeah, sure. Um, so your role as Director of Coach Education and Learning um, is where you are now. If you wouldn't mind, like skills, you've, we've spoken about a little bit, but key skills that you think a, a coach needs to have or develop um, as they, they learn to become a coach? Yeah, um, I think we've, we, we mentioned it earlier and I won't go in too much on about it because I could talk about it a long time, but I think, uh, I think it's important for coaches to really understand why they do what they do and, and you know, one of a better term, have an understanding of their philosophy and how they like the vision of the game, how they see the vision of the game. So I think that's really important. And I think um, we see the importance and we recognise the importance of that. And even in our level one coaching courses, there is an introduction to coaching philosophy because we, we do really value that. Um, I think as I look at it now, and, and you mentioned, you know, global events and the idea or this, this, this sort of turmoil that we find ourselves in, there's this uncertainty around it. I think in life, our ability to become adaptable and be more accepting and comfortable of change is, is key. And I think ever more so in coaching, it's the same. So as coaches, we should be trying to develop new ideas and new thinking, and we should be embracing change that is around us. Um, and I think the skill of adapting to you know, novel situations and different environments is, is going to be something that coaching in the future is, is going to be an important part of coaching in the future. Um, and, I, and I think the ability to review and reflect and look back at what happened to understand what's happening now and then to try and preempt to the future and then modify our behaviors around each of those elements is key for coaching. And, and so with the adaptability piece comes the reflective piece. I think that 
that that's a really important part for coaches. Um, I think if I, I was sort of working with just you know a small group of coaches, even with a group, I mean, my, my role now, I guess I talk to coaches about trying to create, it's maybe pushing my philosophy onto them and they take it or leave it, I guess. But um, in the spirit of trying to create independent thinkers and players that can think and act for themselves, I think we need to demonstrate that in our coaching. And so for coach coaches, my role as an educator is to try and get coaches to think about how they can create spaces and environments for their players that does encourage independent thought, creativity, um, and some of the elements that you would want from, you know, teams that are able to self-organize. I think I was listening to, the, there's a guy called Ken Robinson, who I listened to many, many years ago. Um, he's an educationalist, and he talks about human flourishing is this sort of non-mechanical process. It's not a cause and effect thing. It's, it's an organic thing. We don't really, we can't predict the outcomes of human development, but we can create environments where we can try and, you know, allow for humans and personal performance to flourish. And so I think that's a really important part of coaching is to create spaces and environments where players can, um, yeah, for, for his words, flourish and, and do what they need to do. So I think as coaches, if we start to try and move away from these sort of systematic you know, structure that we, we like as coaches and try and get into a more sort of um, create environments for the players that we're working with at the level they're at and try and allow space for them to discover and play and learn at their speed in their, 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 their current level, as opposed to imposing these structures on them, I think is kind of important for us. And maybe if I give you an example, because it sounds a bit coachy that, um, on the level one course, for example, we might have the task of design a quick practice that, you know, works on the push pass. And in, you know, a minute or so, the coaches will come up with some passing exercises, and then the next request is to, okay, we'll take 30 seconds to make it look more like a game. So they go away and think about it again. Okay, take another 30 seconds to make it more varied and add more decisions to it. And so literally within a minute of extra work, they've taken a different, they've taken their start exercise and developed it a little bit more to make it look like a game and to create some independent thinkers or creativity. And I think it's a, it's something that I encourage all coaches to do is whatever your first piece of, your first practice you draw on your coaching board or in your, in your notepad is think again to try and make it more game-like, add more decisions, more variety and randomness. So uh, I think that's something that we can start to think about as coach educators. Totally. And again, moving on, I, and I heard you talk about this at Forum, uh, I think it was must have been 18 months ago now, but it was regarding... Um, a coaches like halftime talks and, and now quarter time talks. Um, and I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts again. And again, maybe it's because it's the one part of the, or maybe it's the seven minutes that we have some more influence over a game. So I guess that's maybe why it always piques my interest. Um, but what do you think makes up a successful mid game talk? Yeah, I think, I think halftime's uh, obviously different to the quarter times. At halftime, I think you can, there is, a, there is time enough to, if you need to, make some structural changes. So I think there is enough, you are afforded enough time to influence change there if you need to as the coach. Um, 
think the key to success, in my opinion, the key to success for half times or quarter times is clarity, of course. Um, you know, being very clear with the message, keeping the message to, you know, simple number of, you know, I wouldn't go more to two or three key points, if, certainly at half time. But whoever is presenting the message, whether it's the players or the coaching staff, um, I think the, the key element is clarity. And I actually think really important part of where I think sometimes we miss as coaches is that if it's important enough to talk about at half time, it's probably important enough to review after the game. And I think we sometimes miss that. And, and I've guilty of this before. Um, we've, we've, we've set game objectives. For whatever reason, they go out the window and at half time we don't even refer to them. Something else is so now important that we have to talk about it at half time. And at the end of the game, we talk about, we don't even reflect back on the half time thing. So I think um, inside of clarity, there is, and you spoke about it earlier, is that the game plan, how much are we going to stick to it? How much are we able to sort of, you know, move off it? But either way, it's important enough for us to talk about it in the setup and, and at the half time. So it's probably important enough for us to debrief it at the end. But um, yeah, half times, um, absolute clarity. Keep your messages simple. Um, and the thing I've found, Mark, actually over the years is that we'd be in a 10 minute half time at international level. I might be first few minutes of players just getting themselves sorted, recovering, drinking, chatting with themselves. And if I have something to say, or the coaches do, I might invite the other coaches. But if there's nothing to say, there's nothing to say. And I don't, I've never felt the need to fill 10 minutes with, of, of, you know, halftime with mindless chat because it does dilute from whatever message you need to give. And I see that a lot. You know, coaching is not just spewing out content. If, it, if there's nothing to say, there's nothing to say. Let the players have a chat. Um, you could get around individuals at that time at half time, but um, yeah, I think there's certain there is a certain structure to the half time that I think coaches should have in their little back pocket is you know what they what they want the half time to look like, and that can ensure clarity and it can ensure that you stay on task. Um, because I've seen some pretty awful examples of half time where it's just a melee and there's conversation and comment and there's a million different things being discussed and the whistle goes for players to get out and we haven't even given the lineup, you know, and then it's just a bit of a mess. So have some structure, have clarity and uh, yeah, be, be efficient. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I really like the, the fact that from my experience in working with the national team briefly, it was the half times are far more relaxed than I had experience within, and especially like maybe it's a, a European men's full of testosterone. There's a load of <laughs> they're just coming in and they're ranting and raving. Whereas uh, there was a lot more. It, it did feel like there was a lot more considered conversation occurring. And uh, one thing that I would reflect on from my own personal experience was um, when Phil Edwards uh, recorded my quarter time and half time. Um, chats and they were referring back to those was was really interesting it's something we do two players but I had very rarely done as a coach and to sit down with him it was during a development team we we're out in Holland sit down with him and talk through and really look at it in detail was, was something I hadn't done before and I saw huge value and there were still lessons that I learned from there that I would I would use now so that was that for me that was very interesting yeah, absolutely. And and you just hit on a couple of really key points there. I think uh, you, you used, you know, the, the example of a, a, you know, excited male team coming in and just sort of letting off. 
and I think that's a really important part for coaches to understand is that there's often a heightened emotion at half time, and it could be a positive thing, could be a negative thing. Depend often depends on the score line, um, but understand that they are emotional potentially, and that's why the structure is quite important. I'd always encourage with the teams I worked with to just take okay, well, just take the first two minutes of ten, just to sit, relax, have the conversation you need to have, drink, vent, you know, recover reflect and then we can start the conversation because yeah there's an awful lot going on there and the emotion can shape the conversation in a way that you don't want it to um so i think that's a it's a important point you mentioned and it's amazing how different lines can have different views on a game the forwards can be really happy with what's happened and the back backfield are absolutely devastated and they're nattering away to themselves it's amazing that within the same game the different views and different opinions that occur and yeah that's the sport i guess yeah no you're, you're spot on um where do you see hockey going in the future i mean hockey's quite a a very forward thinking there's been lots of rule changes i'm Sure, when you started playing, it was maybe on grass and you were catching overheads and very different to the game that we see in front of us now. Um, where Do you have any inkling of, of where the, the game's going to move? Oh, that's funny. I, I was definitely playing <laughs> on grass. I don't think I ever caught an overhead. But, uh, not, 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 rolling it, not rolling it in? I didn't play in the roll in there. <laughs> yeah, I need to get a bit of face cream, I think. My wind... <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, where is it going? Yeah, I think you're right. It is hockey is generally, and, and there's been a criticism, of course, that hockey is too many changes and too many initiatives and too many different things that go on. But um, what I, I, in recent years, what I've liked about international hockey is that there has been an attempt to clean it up, to encourage a flowing, faster game, to engage with umpires about, you know, um, how they can help keep a game moving along, and that, that's been really good. I think that's a that's a good thing. Um, I think, yeah, I think we're in uncertain times. Of course, we are in this sort of current climate that we're in, and so um, I mean, if we look at it just on ground level, we, we, we're seeing some really sad losses of programs, college programs, in recent weeks and months, um, and that that's of course tragic for our sport and and. None of us right now know the depth or breadth that this is going to go to. I think we're, like a lot of areas of society, we're holding our breath and hoping that we get through this, right? You know, and, and uh, we don't quite know when that will be. Um, and so there's a huge amount of uncertainty around just, you know, the sport as there is around life in many areas at the moment. But I think I've always been a believer in that with uncertainty comes opportunity. And, and I've always thought that, and, and I think there is a way that, you know, regard it, it's, things will change. Um, I think our ability to be adaptable and our ability to look at creative ways that we can innovate with our sport, um, to continue to grow, to continue to engage with different communities and, you know, groups around the country and around the world. Um, I think that's going to be key to us, but yeah, I, honestly, I, I can't sit and say, yep, yeah, it's going to look like this because I don't think we know that. Um, but I think there'll always be hockey. Um, there'll always be people that enjoy the sport and want to play. I think it's a great game as we all do. I think it's got so much that going for it. The initiatives around the pro league, I think 
it's been a you know tricky couple of years just to get that up and going and you know covid hasn't helped with that but i do think there is a potential to have you know a really really impressive global league that can inspire you know kids from grassroots all the way through so that's that's what we can hope for i think i look at the men's game i think there's some really good stuff happening there at the moment just in terms of the way the way it's been played and yeah i think the women's team holland of course are sat on the top at the moment but i think you know there's a number of teams that are pushing and getting close so at international level i think there's some exciting stuff domestically yeah we've got to think about you know, what it looks like in the next few months when things become clearer and then how we can address whatever issues come up as they do. Yeah, I mean, your point on the Pro League, having experienced it very briefly, I think it's a great, and purely as a, a viewer, I love the fact that there is hockey on TV more regularly, that I can get up on a Saturday morning and there's there's a game on that I can watch and that hadn't previously been as accessible. And for me to get a, a more regular dose of international hockey, I, I found fantastic. Um, I think there are obviously challenges, but I, for, as a viewer and someone who who wanted to watch more quality hockey, I thought that was, a, that was great. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? Went from zero to 100 from not being able to see much hockey to sort of 80-odd games over a couple of weeks, you know. But, uh, yeah, as I say, you, you can't, uh, as a hockey person, it, it's it's the visibility has increased, which is great, and let's hope it continues to do so. Indeed. Um, and then, finally, what advice would you give to a, a player who's trying to make it as an international? There, there's a, an army of, of young girls and boys in this country that are looking to, to make it to the elite level. Um, what would you say to them? I think, first and foremost, you've got to enjoy it. Um, and I think our role as coaches is to promote um, you know, environments that are enjoyable and a measure of success for me was always, you know, I'd always try and judge you each day is that if they want to come back tomorrow, then you've had a good day as a coach. Um, and so first and foremost, if I was talking to young players now is you, you, you obviously play the game for a reason. If it's for the love of the game, then that's the start point because um, you don't, it's a very difficult journey. And maybe as I, maybe I should say this or not, but it's best to be honest. Um, the, the, the journey to high performance is 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 arduous. It, it's hard work, and and uh, you, you know it, Mark. You've been involved in it at the coaching level, and if you go on that journey, it will reveal challenges and struggles that you know you won't have expected, maybe. Um, and certainly, if you want to succeed at high performance, you'll definitely go to places that you didn't necessarily sign up to. Uh, but but I think the reward is unbelievable. It's the greatest journey that you'll possibly go on. And so that's always the, the flip side of this is that sort of the yin and yang is that, yeah, there's hard work and it's tough and you'll find it effortful. But the, the, the other side of that is that it is the most rewarding journey. Being part of a team is probably one of the most unique things that you'll ever experience. Um, if you get to what we spoke about earlier, I think is the real alchemy of great teams is if you can find a group of selfless people that put the team for that, that's the real goal. That's when things start to happen. And if you ever are lucky enough to be part of a team that is able to do that, 
I think the qualities, the skills, the attributes, the characteristics, the values, the behaviors that will, that will be part of that team will set you in good stead for the rest of your life. And I think people choose to be in team sports because they obviously like being around other people. I, I never had an affinity to play tennis. I didn't really want to be off doing an individual sport. I've always grew up with team sports and there is a real value to it. I see a huge value to social, you know, in the social environment. Um, and I think players that sign up for it, yes, there's some struggles, but you know, the potential upside is absolutely amazing. And I would always, I just so love to be able to go back and do it all again. And the, the final piece I would say is that the window of playing sport in the bigger picture of life is very, very small. And so take every opportunity you can to enjoy it when you can. And yeah, it's, uh, you'll look back when you get to as old as me and you'll think, oh, I wish I could do it again. So uh, yeah, enjoy it while it's there. Very wise words. Craig, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a, a pleasure to, to sit down and, and chat some, some field hockey uh, and hear your opinions. Uh, Mark, it's been wonderful. Thanks for inviting me on. And um, yeah, good luck. I'll talk to you soon. Excellent. Thanks, Craig. Stay safe. Join Harrow Sports as they present homeskilling. Harrow will be releasing instructional videos from players and coaches around the world to encourage players to stay active during this period of social distancing. Get your whole family involved. Harrow is offering a free second stick and ball with all qualifying stick purchases over $100. Visit Harrow's website at harrowsports.com to get involved. Still get much more here. USA, Paul Singh gets the second goal. Number 18, Paul Singh has got the second goal for USA. Thank you for joining us on In The Circle. Come back next week for another look inside USA Field Hockey.